Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. Although a majority of people agree that online disinformation is tearing apart the fabric of society, nobody, including the researchers studying its effects, can agree on what constitutes fake news. What those concerned citizens do believe, regardless of party affiliation, is that the source of this polarizing scourge is Silicon Valley, a critique that might be helping rather than harming those companies' bottom lines. In his cover story for the September issue of Harper's Magazine, Joseph Bernstein, senior reporter at BuzzFeed News and 2021 Neiman Fellow, deconstructs received wisdom about disinformation. Its architects, we're told, have an innate knowledge of human behavior and their powers of persuasion can warp the minds of the gullible masses, bringing us Trump and Brexit. Yet, as Bernstein writes, such sweeping assertions about the hypnotic powers of online mirror mid-century claims made about older forms of advertising. And those claims might turn out to be just as dubious. In this episode, I spoke with Bernstein about his piece, attempts to curb disinformation, and the wish to return to a time that never was, when we all lived in the same shared reality. I was curious, you know, this this essay makes a really intricate and nuanced argument about disinformation. And that approach to making an argument is pretty rare um, when it comes to anything digital. You know, it's either it's 1984 or it's the best thing ever and there's not really much in between. So for those who haven't read your piece, what is the story we're being told about disinformation who does it serve and what is it leaving out? Yeah, totally. So first of all, thanks so much for having me, Violet. This is a really fun thing for me to do because I started my journalism career as a Harper's intern in 2010 and the comeback on, on the podcast, which I guess didn't exist back then, but it's or, or was in its nascent days. It's just really, really fun. You hit on something that has always bothered me about the way we talk about technology, which is that it's very, you know, black or white, good and evil. And that dichotomy is kind of supercharged by a kind of black or white, good and evil, ultra polarized political environment and discourse around politics in general. So Mm -hmm. when when you have those two things put together, just like the space to make a long, nuanced, like couched argument is it's difficult to, there's not a lot of space for that. And, um, that's why Harper's is, I mean, that's one of the reasons Harper's is great. So um, that's my little, sh- that's my shout out. Um, <laughs> the story we're told about disinformation. After the 2016 election and also after Brexit, which of course is the kind of overture to the 2016 election, we're told that people have been exposed to information online. The rabble, you know, this, this massive group of people have been exposed to information online. And that information plays a major role in the ascension of the populist right. And that this dissemination is done basically by people who have both a technical understanding of how to leverage social platforms in a way that uh, completely unlocks the human mind to be persuaded, but also who have this kind of mystical and it's both a kind of an argument about technological sophistication, but also a kind of older idea about hypnotism and um, hidden messages and 
essentially the argument is that people get exposed to false messages online and those messages convince them to do things. And that meets a utter revulsion by, you know, most of the kind of knowledge making like institutions and institutions of power in the United States and the Western world at the politics that this world's disinformation has supposedly or allegedly enabled. Toward the beginning of your article, you cite the work of Tim Huang, a former lawyer for Google, whose most recent book, Subprime Attention Crisis, questions the idea that digital advertising is as powerful as big tech would like us to think. And his arguments and yours are convincing as far as showing that the impact of digital ads is overhyped. I think for listeners, how many times are you really clicking on the the, the Google ad about the woman that doctors hate because she looks really young. So do we have any methods for figuring this out? Or is there just no reliable way to separate correlation from causation? Well, I, I don't want to make a like, big sweeping argument about, you know, whether or not online ads ever work. That's a, that's a separate conversation that is, you know, happening in economics departments and political science departments and, you know, lots of people study this stuff and obviously the industry has its own, you know, sort of tendentious take on it. What I wanted to do by talking, you know, at length about Tim's, you know, fairly provocative argument is inject some doubt into the narrative that the things we look at online that are, you know, sort of bought and paid for in an effort to convince us are necessarily convincing us. And that that's like, an empirically sort of irrefutable fact. And, you know, Tim's argument was essentially that online ads, many of the claims that they make, the people who sell them are in fact disputable. That led me my thinking in a direction about this sort of common argument about disinformation, primarily because the first real exposure a lot of people had to the idea of disinformation in the, in the current political environment was about Cambridge Analytica and political advertisements. And so, okay, maybe you're willing to say political ads are a completely different kettle of fish than all other ads. Uh, maybe that's true, maybe it's not. But if we're going to at least be somewhat skeptical about the claims that people who want to sell you on the idea that they can sell people on things make, then we should at least be a little skeptical about the idea that especially sort of bought and paid for dis or misinformation is as effective as these people want us to believe. One of the consequences of that is you have to think about the worldview that that supports. And, and it's a, obviously it's one that is highly beneficial to not only people who are trying to sell crap on the internet, whether it's, you know, the secret face serum that keeps the woman you're talking about looking younger <laughs> Or whether it's, you know, Joe Biden is is going to personally drive a bunch of Hondurans across the Mexican border or, you know, whatever. I mean, I think there's some we need to slow down on the idea that people don't think skeptically or don't look skeptically at all about the information they're exposed to. And then more than that, thinks a little skeptically about the idea that um, people are seeing information that is doing anything more than confirming biases or, or um, predispositions that they already have. And that social media maybe played a limited role in creating, but that it, you know, 
existed long before they signed up for facebook.com or youtube.com or you know whatever network you want to talk about yeah it's a very um nasty view of humanity i think that you know people are so gullible that these sorts of ads have such profound effects on you know elections and whatnot the fact that the media has really doubled down on this idea of disinformation as the core cause it kind of feeds into the stereotype of liberals being snooty and proves everything the right wing has ever said about you know the other side like it's um you know people felt this way before but you just didn't hear about it because everything in the media was much more top down right yeah and i mean that's one of the things i bring up early in the piece you know there's a kind of romanticizing even if it's subtle in a lot of the work that gets done around missing disinformation about a sort of oh a past era when people agreed on facts and there was a common a common architecture of reality to use a phrase i overheard at a party recently <laughs> and to be honest the common architecture of reality excluded a lot of people yeah who were busy building their own reality and some of those people were building their reality through millions of those people through like uh in the 1950s and 60s like far right red baiting uh, radio mm -hmm. preachers who were essentially the precursor to uh, the contemporary conservative talk radio scene, you know, which of course itself leads to kind of Fox News and, and the contemporary information space. So there's precursors, but it also excluded like racial minorities, religious minorities, mm -hmm. lots of, you know, what we would call underrepresented groups. They were underrepresented by the media too, right? Like yeah. they were excluded from the common understanding of reality. And so when we talk about gatekeepers, well, that has more of a negative connotation. But when we talk about this like sepia tone days of shared reality, well, a lot of that reality was just ignorance, ignorance of the things that were going on in this country. And um, when we think about the information we're exposed to now, we need to, I think, draw in the same conversation, the downsides of the kind of death of the gatekeepers, which is, you know, a lot of really horrible propaganda. But also the upside, which is that like it's much easier to find a much more diverse set of voices now than it has ever been in the past. And for better or worse, you know, like I know about police brutality happening in Atlanta, Georgia, or, you know, a guy who can't go for a who's shot while going for a jog. And, you know, I know about these injustices now, and I don't think I would have known about them in the 19, you know, like for say right after the civil rights movement, I would have thought, well, like, geez, things are getting better. And so, you know, I think when we talk about like the universe of shared facts, th these two conversations sort of have to be had in parallel. Exactly. Yeah. And I think also people who have lived outside of the coasts might also tell you a similar story. Mm -hmm. <laughs> where it's like, well, yeah, I always knew somebody who was like that. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, there's still... Well, it might not be outright disinformation. To what extent does exposure to the people you didn't know existed before create new realities for people living in a country without, you know, like class consciousness? Because there is a psychological phenomenon. And I remember reading this is why uh, Peter Thiel invested in Facebook, which, you know, it's definitely an evil concept mm -hmm. um, that there's a psychological phenomenon where you see something you didn't know existed before. And once you've seen it, you want to have it. 
And that goes from everything from clothing to how, you know, how you play your makeup to your body image to, Mm -hmm. you know, how even you see people documenting their lives on these different platforms. Mm -hmm. So without sort of, I mean, when we're talking about uh, the golden age of everybody on the same page, I mean, that never included class consciousness or other, you know, other forms of critiques of American society. Right. I mean, certainly, I, I think what you're talking about is like mimetic de- desire. Um, is that Rene Girard? You know, which is mimetic meme, you know, tra- transmissible idea. Holy shit, right. we're cracking this thing wide open. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> Give us a YouTube channel and uh, we'll really expose the truth. Yeah, I mean, certainly, um, and and this is a subtext of my piece, the, you know, Facebook and, and Instagram are these like massive engines of commerce. And I think, you know, one of the insidious things that the disinformation critique does is it buttresses, to go back to the piece about ads, it buttresses the kind of primacy of that sort of commercial reality. It says that, yes, like like more and better product, you know, you'll be exposed to all these sort of products. And it, it, it tells the people who sell those products, like, this is the place, you know, sell them. and and to the point about exposing people to new realities that they then desire, that's certainly possible. I don't know that it's like an empirically undoubtable fact that that that's the way that people sort of shape their behavior based on what they see online. But but the point I wanted to make in this piece is that, you know, somewhere between the kind of technological determinism and the humans are totally free agents, those sort of two things I think are probably in some kind of conversation or like dialectic. And I wanted to, to push back from one side of that conversation. Right. I mean, I thought the part where you were discussing pre propaganda, this idea that, you know, the foundations of society are kind of from which actual propaganda can grow. But, you know, you know, I read, there was a big study in the, God forgive me, the Wall Street Journal uh-huh. um, that was talking about the impact that Instagram had on teenage on, girls. Yeah, on teenage yeah. girls, and that's something that sure that's not necessarily impacting elections, but it is right. still really negatively impacting yeah people's lives. I would make a couple. I'd make a couple points here. The, the story you're talking about is a great story in the Wall Street Journal, um, which shows that Instagram had internal research that showed that teenage girls were self-reporting that, you know, rates of dissatisfaction with their body image correlated with their increased use of Instagram. There's a couple points. I I don't think that contradicts my story. I think, in fact, my story goes kind of hand in hand with that. The first is propaganda doesn't affect everyone the same in every context. So you're talking about a group of people who I think are probably extra vulnerable to certain kinds of media messages, teenage girls. And I think they've been that way since I mean, I I remember, I've never been a teenage girl, but I certainly remember this conversation about exposure to to mass media and the effects it had on girls, the way girls look at their own bodies. I mean, this was a huge topic of conversation when I was in high school. I remember the assemblies we had, you know, with speakers talking about, you know, Britney Spears's stomach and Total Request Live. And so, you know, I think the mainstream media owned by many of the same people who own the companies that do this disinformation work, also push 
the same kinds of images that make teenage girls feel like bad about their bodies. That's one piece. Well, actually, that's both. I mean, it's it's the it's the idea that there may be certain groups of people who are affected in certain ways by certain media messages, which is far from the sort of overarching disinformation like mindset, which is kind of a one size fits all mindset. And there's the fact that these ideas about good and bad, and I don't want to make broad statements about like the history of misogyny, but like, you know, <laughs> these things weren't invented in, in, you know, 2010. Exactly. There's a really long history and that history is just as important as the fact that now uh, a 16 year old girl can see not just a celebrity's, you know, perfect airbrushed body, but, you know, just like an influence, you know, so, um, have things changed drastically? Yes. Can we make, I think, like broad and sort of deterministic statements about the effect of tech on people's brains? No. And some of that has to do with the fact that Facebook and, and Google and Twitter hold on to their data, you know, particularly Facebook and Google hold on to their data like it's, you know, the crown jewels because, well, it is particularly if the data is saying like we're not as effective at selling shit as we say we are. But that's another point. So it's not to say that the companies don't have a lot of blame. There's there's blame to go around and they deserve most of it. Just to say that a lot of these problems ex have existed for a long time. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't, you know, I'm mentioning this phenomenon certainly wasn't a critique of your argument. It's just that, you know, these, I don't think we, I, I mean, psychology is such a young discipline mm -hmm. and sometimes barely scientific mm -hmm. let's be honest mm -hmm. and it's you know i don't think we have a full understanding of how these things actually do impact our lives and so to say that people are only driven by what they desire or what they fear and then so of course if you do sexy gay bernie sanders of course they're gonna vote they're gonna hate hillary you know like i mean when i saw the actual collections of you know, fake Russian ads. Right. It, it was laughable. And it's it's like, I mean, of course, Russia is going to lean into this idea, just like Silicon Valley does, yeah. of, of their supremacy and that they could control an election. I mean, who 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 in their right mind is going to see, you know, anyone who has like a basic under, like, for, first of all, it's funny, as you say, but like, who in their right mind would listen to a reporter or an, a subject matter expert say, um, well... Uh, I think you are the hidden hand that controls everything <laughs> and you have unlimited pat. You know, I mean, perception is reality to a certain degree. And like, you know, uh, if, if someone wants to build up your image as being like really smart and powerful, why would you say no? You know, I mean, and I mean, obviously, now that we're on to Russia, you write about the burgeoning field of research and commentary that analyzes the effects of so-called disinformation, you know, and a term that, as you point out, has always been political and belligerent. And in fact, emerging the Cold War is a Soviet word, of mm -hmm. course, disinformatia. Disinformatia, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> that um, essentially meant false capitalist propaganda. To start, what are the main problems with this research? In your engagement with it, did you find anything that seemed well substantiated or useful? And is there a way to move past the anecdotal here? The single greatest problem with this field is what they would call a lexical problem. There are not good common definitions for disinformation and misinformation. There just aren't. 
I think there's a general understanding that disinformation is more intentional than misinformation, more coordinated, and for lack of a better word, uh, like eviler than misinformation. <laughs> yes. And there have been various attempts to define these things. Uh, the problem is when you define them, and I write this in the piece, when you when you try and define them so broadly as to anticipate that people will, will try and make them political, you end up with definitions that are insane. Like the definition I talk about in the piece that comes from the best literature review in this field, which is from 2018. And an academic on Twitter, I think rightly pointed out that that's, you know, a lot in the field has happened since then. But the definition was like any information one could be exposed to online that might distort their perception of reality. What? I know. (laughs) Huh? Uh, So like the, the problem is, Reality is contextual. Facts are contextual. I mean, not all facts. Many facts are contextual. And so if that's our working definition of disinformation, I can very easily say, wow, that's disinformation, Violet. And if you were like a hardcore MAGA Republican, you could say uh, something that I wrote that you thought that I had contextualized in an unfair, tendentious way was disinformation or misinformation. And so there is just a kind of a larger problem to begin with right there. I, I by no means am saying in this piece that the people who do this work don't produce interesting data. They do. And and they produce really interesting findings. Um, what I think is the, the, you know, if you sort of look historically at the attempt to be academic or research study propaganda, when it looks at specific campaigns, when it looks at specific funding sources, when it takes smaller groups of people, when it's essentially humble in the way it thinks about influence, it's on pretty solid ground. And when it acknowledges the politics that are in play, when it tries to make these sort of like grand empirical statements about these like huge theories of influence and persuasion, I think that's when it gets on shakier ground. And there's certainly a lot of really, really great work being done on scams and influence campaigns, and various kinds of, you know, the term of art is media manipulation. There's a lot of really good work being done. The problem, I think, is when that feeds into a bigger narrative about like tech's manipulation of our minds, as if that's sort of all happening directionally and in a way that we can predict or have a total explanation of. I just don't think that's true. Right. And it's it's been kind of painful to see the, you know, media itself sort of try to fight against this trend that they've been selling so hard with you know the pinocchio system Mm -hmm. the the valorization of fact checking when in reality this the perfect reality that everyone should be a part of of course you know fact checking is limited by the sources that you're looking at it's limited by who's doing the checking these these older media organizations which it should be noted are kind of losing their place in this new digital landscape right the idea that they could say like this is my perfect this is the perfect reality and you know you can trust this because we're the new york times it doesn't it doesn't work right but also like the idea that if somehow only people were informed that information is bad that they would change their mind i mean yeah this, this goes to the correlation causation question but like there's a great story in buzzfeed to shout out buzzfeed my current player uh, by my former colleagues, Ryan Mack and Craig Silverman, which um, was about uh, internal Facebook data about how much articles spread, Trump's Trump's posts spread 
after Facebook started labeling them as misinformative or disinformative, mm-hmm. and it limited their spread like 8%. So like, you know, that's not nothing, but it's also saying like, people who want to share Trump stuff are going to share Trump stuff. And also, I mean, imagine, just do a little perspective taking, imagine you love Donald Trump and you want to support him or you want to troll the libs who you know. And there's a warning on a Facebook post that basically says this post is too hot to handle. Like, of course, <laughs> exactly. you're going to share it. It's like the oldest, you know, it's like uh, it's like classic reverse psychology. Yeah. Not to I mean, that's that's like a joke. But yeah, it just I think our ideas about this are a little um, under undercooked. Yeah. And I mean, um, I mean, it also, you know, your piece talks about how this idea of disinformation really serves old media companies, Silicon Valley. I mean, conversely, the idea that Facebook is appointing itself to moderate information or Twitter is, you know, not going to run the Hunter Biden story it's, it, because it's too too much disinformation. It, it, it feeds into the conservative idea that there is shadow banning going on, that these companies are inherently like in love with libs, when in fact, quite the opposite seems to be true. And particularly with Twitter, you know, the people that you know, that they were verifying Nazis, Uh but those accounts wouldn't show up in Germany because that would have been a violation of the law that they knew they had, they they knew exactly what they were doing. And Uh it was all just kind of for their bottom line, which I would argue is not a, um, a tenet of classical or whatever the hell liberalism we have now. Yeah. I mean, to your, to your point, some of this reporting in this Great Wall Street Journal series showed that Facebook basically has a special content moderation policy for big accounts, for celebrities. And so, you know, there's the liberal narrative, very strong narrative is that Facebook won Trump the election. The very strong conservative narrative is that Facebook punishes and social media punishes conservatives. But actually, it seems that what they do is they, um, they're they really, really nice to the, like the power users who drive engagement on their platform. And so, you know, I don't want, (laughs) this is not exactly workers of the world unite, but maybe social, (laughs) social media peons of Facebook unite, because there's a different set of rules for big accounts and small accounts. And I mean, that to me, that's pretty fascinating. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the whole thing where, you know, after January 6th, basically Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, to a lesser, far lesser extent, YouTube got together and said, you know, we're done with this guy. He's gone too far. And, you know, it w- he was about to leave office. So what so what use would he actually be to their platform, you know, once he was out? And, obvi- and you know, he was coming up against the law, too. Yeah. And I, and I, and I mean, another and, and that brings me to another point, which is um, this is not my point. It's, um, Evelyn Duick is a great uh, lecturer at Harvard Law School, studies this the content moderation and in law, international law. One of the arguments against this idea that without Facebook, Trump is nothing. Trump hasn't, has been banned from Facebook for how long now? You know, nine months. And his hold on the Republican Party is not, hasn't, you know, hasn't waned. No. So I think there's just, in concert with your point about like him not being useful for Facebook anymore, um, maybe Facebook is not like necessarily the most useful thing in the world for him. I mean, to be honest, I think that his most power in some ways he's most powerful on Twitter because that's where he kind of drives all of these conversations and all of these narratives. 
So, you know, we also have to think critically about the differences between the platforms, even though Twitter is much smaller, it has sort of a much more influential audience or much more influential sort of active user base. Well, it's predominantly used by people in media. Well, it's it's not predominantly used by people in media, but media people predominantly use it. Yes. Right. So and and people in politics and tech. So, right. I mean, these are, you know, the kind of confluence of those three things where um, a lot of the live issues in American culture are right now. So, yeah, that's exactly exactly right. So what if, I mean, I am curious about platforms like YouTube in regards to, you know, doing research, which is where more and more people get their information. How do radicalization studies or disinformation studies about that compare to studies about Facebook and Twitter? Because, you know, YouTube's rules about fact checking post January 6th were very, very different. You basically it was like a three strikes rule, which is, you know, if it's really that dangerous, why are you letting them do it three times? Yeah, I mean, there's um the world of content moderation on YouTube is really interesting. And oftentimes it flows from sensational stories like January 6th. And I don't mean sensational in the sense that they're overblown. I just mean that they are a sensation or ISIS in the past uploading their videos or in some cases, big influencers sort of doing things and getting in trouble for them. You bring up the word radicalization, which is interesting. My feeling about theories of radicalization is that they should be symmetrical. So if you're going to explain how, like, like if you have a model of thinking about the way that people become members of ISIS, you should have a model that also explains how someone becomes like a white terrorist, like a white extremist of some kind. Mm-hmm. And I think with the research, although a lot of it is on, you know, kind of quote unquote, Islamic extreme, Muslim extremism, I don't know what the sort of term that people are comfortable using now is. That's what a lot of the research is on. And I think the smarter people who do that research have basically given up on the idea that there's any one or specific combination of factors that makes people radical. And for example, I believe the most common thing that went hand in hand with being, um, this is either with being a Western like convert who traveled to Iraq and Syria to be a member of ISIS, but also I think of people who become members of like the white Aryan resistance or Ku Klux Klan. I think it's a criminal record. Mm. So like, it's not, there's there's these theories there's a conveyor belt theory which is you know you have one experience and that puts you on the belt to become a a terrorist or a radical there's a gate gateway theory which is there's a series of gates you have to pass through to become radical Uh, i think the way people talk about youtube radicalization is some combination of the two like you have to see the right thing but then that puts you on a conveyor belt to become insane or radical or whatever but i don't necessarily think that is backed up by research. I mean, certainly we can we can look at what the algorithm shows people, but just the fact that people see content that is disturbing or untrue, I'm not comfortable making the leap from that to, well, now these people are radical. Right. I mean, I think there was, um, the New York Times did a piece where they looked at the YouTube history of a guy who was sort of sucked into more extreme right-wing content. And mm-hmm. again, it started as a very benign thing and then mm-hmm. he... He went in and then he was able to kind of pull himself out, but he was spending like hours and hours and hours a day watching that. And we can say, well, that sounds like an extreme case. But again, who are we to say? Because these these companies don't really share that information with the public and they're treated as public utilities, even though they are private companies. Right. And there seems to be, you know, by ordaining themselves as their own 
gatekeepers, you know, the, the, the Facebook moderation crew, the Twitter moderation crew, they can maintain their, the privileges of being a private company that masquerades as a public utility. Yeah, that's right. And again, I mean, I'm comfortable laying the blame at the feet of the companies insofar as they're very, very tight about their data and potentially purposely misleading with the data that they give to researchers. So um, yeah, I think I think that's right. And I think it's forced the media to be overly reliant on anecdotes like the one you're talking about from the Times, which are powerful. Anecdotes you know, are, are one of the things that drive journalism. And certainly anecdotes are part of what have um, made people so afraid of bad information online. Um, the question is, how generalizable are those anecdotes? And I think the answer is we, we don't know. And how do we dispel the notion that these these companies aren't public goods and we should not expect them to behave so? Because, you know, anytime someone gets their account locked or kicked off or what have you, there's this among certain circles, there's an outrage that this person should be able to say, you know, they should they have the right to free speech mm -hmm. um, regardless of what it is. Right. Again, despite years and years of evidence why that's maybe not a good thing. Not a good thing. But I mean, so how do we dispel that notion? Is it is the only solution to just log off and stop using these platforms? Or is there? Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, th these conversations about moderation, radicalization, you know, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act and, and sort of political speech, they're very loaded. It, it feels like trench warfare where every inch of this turf has been laid down with barbed wire and, you know, the kind of the combat it's at a, it feels like it's at a kind of stalemate and every inch has been sort of saturated. What I was trying to do with this piece is say, okay, maybe a more effective critique of these platforms than your information is so powerful that it's bad for society is your information is worthless. It sucks. And it's not good business. <laughs> like, it's not worth what you say it's worth. Your platform is not worth what you say it's worth. And maybe research will come out that shows that that's completely wrong and I'm wrong. But I suspect that in some ways, this conversation about disinformation and misinformation has cemented the idea, the profitable idea, that social media platforms control the world. And I just want people to take a step back and think about the assumptions behind that. Rightly so. And I feel like it, we'd be remiss not to mention the beloved Overton window, what is perceived as acceptable discourse mm -hmm. by the American public or any public, excuse me. So, you know, Silicon Valley, obviously, they're, as you say, they're leaning into this idea that their information isn't just crap, a bunch of, you know, that is not just even though most of it certainly is, but that it's, you know, it has this power. But still, you know, seeing as all discourse increasingly plays out on these platforms, they're not exactly preventing these shifts in, in what is acceptable and what is not. So how far do you think we can or should talk about the relative ways social media might be accelerating or exacerbating changes in the ways people relate to information itself, even if we avoid this simplistic narrative that the algorithms are magically directing us toward uh, certain views and we're powerless to resist. Right. In no way am I saying that people shouldn't study that. In no way am I saying people shouldn't uh, report on it 
report on you know every bad thing that the platforms are doing. To go back to an earlier point, the Overton window, as you said, refers to the range of essentially acceptably of acceptable ideas in public discourse. First of all, you have to define public discourse, which is difficult. At what point does 4chan get a big enough readership that it has shifted the Overton window? I mean, who, this is directly related to the question about gatekeepers, you know, who who built the window, right? I mean, who who's the, what is the window now? Um, so in a way, it's just like less of a window and more of like a, I don't know, like a turtleneck that doesn't have any elastic in it anymore. Yeah. But it's allowed a lot of new or previously repressed ideas to come into the public sphere. To go back to the earlier point, ideas about the like abiding racial subjugation in American life, in addition to ideas about sort of xenophobic and nativist ideas that were maybe not as pronounced, you know, over the past, I don't know, 30 years as in previous times in American history. Or just sublimated. Yeah, or sublimated, right, or coded or, you know. Anyway, these are pol- this is politics. People fight over these ideas. They're live issues. And the idea that we can design an algorithm that is like, <laughs> can code certain things as misinformation, disinformation when these things change. And, you know, that not to become conspiratorial about the coronavirus, because I really don't like people who are conspiratorial about the coronavirus, but, you know, Facebook was blocking for a long time posts that suggested that the coronavirus may have been uh, accidental leak from a lab. Uh, and then there were these intelligence reports that that's a possibility that the, you know, U.S. Uh, intelligence agencies are investigating. Now, I'm not saying you need to have faith in the U.S. intelligence agencies. I'm just saying, no. <laughs> should, should you be able to post about, you know, what does it mean for Facebook to say that something that these agencies are actively investigating is misinformation? Do they have more information than the NSA or this yet? I mean, my point is that just like, no, they don't. And that's ironically one of the reasons that Facebook actually needs you know, Facebook needs accredited institutions. They need respected institutions because they tell it how to think on some of these really big issues. And well, to expect Facebook to be more sophisticated about COVID than like the CDC, as much as I don't like Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook, I think is a little a little ridiculous. So part of it is yeah. there's a lot of confusion and confusing things happening in the world right now. And asking, you know, I guess the question is whether or not you want to see those confusing things reflected on social media. And that's a, you know, that's sort of beyond the remit of my, of my piece, but um, that's a different question than what, you know, what is missing or what is disinformation? Yeah. I mean, and even though there are these established bastions of journalism or in the case of CNN or MSNBC, sort of okay, maybe? Because, I mean, you you did go slightly viral recently when you pointed out that a story about ivermectin mm-hmm. patients crowding out other patients at this hospital that was propagated by Rachel Maddow was actually not true. And there was no attempt at retraction, and people just kept resharing it because it sounds funny. I mean... Yeah, of course. and like that's just classic confirmation bias, like story that's too too good to be true. So there's no equivalence between MSNBC and Fox News, right? Like one is a kind of like quasi-fascistic, deeply, deeply paranoid and insane and irresponsible, you know, just like grossly White irresponsible. nationalist. Right, like- Replacement theory shit. Yeah. Right, I mean like the people who have been employed on Tucker Carlson's show and 
Um, the other is like a cringy, occasionally in its own way, quasi conspiratorial, in my opinion, on the Russia stuff. Mm-hmm. But you know, there's just no comparison between the two. Like MSNBC, NBC has like lots of reporters who are like trying to do good work and like you know do responsible journalism. Fox News is not salvageable. MSNBC fucks up sometimes because it's a news organization and it's like a recognizable news organization and should, you know, I think be held to a higher standard because Fox News is just like, we can talk about how bad it is till the cows come home. There's no shortage of people doing that. They've been doing it since uh, George W. Bush got elected. Right. I mean, Many a documentary has been shot about how evil. Yeah. And it's only gotten worse. Right. So, um, yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, that kind of is, is what it is. All right. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. This was so much fun. Way looser and like just more fun than all the other stuff I've done. So, You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save. 